Hey, Chris. Graham Gillies here. Coming out of Horsefly, British Columbia, here in Canada. It's a beautiful sunny day. There's still some snow on the ground. Driving by some cows right now. Lots of horses out here. Just a beautiful area. Lots of great First Nations history here. Lots of great ranchers. Lots of great music. Check out the Romeros, Jason and Ferris. They play some amazing, amazing bluegrass. Love the podcast, man. Love you. Take care. Radio Mano, Papachango. Thank you, Graham, from Horsefly. Strangely enough, that is a very appropriate uh, intro for this episode, which is with a guy named James Nash, Captain James Nash, U.S. Marine Corps. James is a commercial hunting guide and fishing guide. And as you'll hear, he has uh, some very thoughtful, interesting um, insights into the experience of killing an animal, living around animals. Um, something I've been thinking about quite a bit recently. By the way, I just bought a compound bow. Uh, I think I'm going to go wild boar hunting with Kyle in Hawaii in the next few months. Um, so that'll be something to write home about. Rancher out of Joseph, Oregon. Um, very interesting guy. Met him at a pig roast on a windswept mountaintop overlooking the beautiful valley in which Joseph, Oregon is situated. If you've never been there and you're going through that part of the country, I highly recommend it. It's a beautiful, beautiful area. Um, This interview was recorded uh, maybe 10 days ago. It was my intention to post it right away, but um, things got complicated. Uh, Cassie and I were, as you probably know, if you listened to the last episode, we were in Oregon, we were um, headed east into Idaho, and the plan was to go into Grand Tetons and Yellowstone, and then down through Colorado and all this stuff. But uh, unfortunately, my dad, who's been having some health issues, um, things took a turn for the worse. And my mom and sister said, maybe it's a better idea for you guys to come back to LA and check in so that's what we did we're back in LA dad seems to be getting better now so who knows but uh you know these situations only happen once um even if they seem to happen again and again ultimately they only happen once so um uh, we didn't feel right sitting in hot springs in Idaho while life and death matters we're being attended to down here so we're back down here and we'll be here for a while until things stabilize one way or the other uh okay so i just wanted to say all that because i'm still getting um beautiful emails from people inviting us to stop in and visit in colorado or do a podcast with this person or that person or 
you know, come park in our driveway, let me buy you a beer, um, all those beautiful emails that make this podcast sort of the center of my world um, are so appreciated and, and we're very grateful for all your kindness and your generosity, but I, I didn't want you to be under the misapprehension that we weren't, uh, you know, weren't, weren't happy to follow up on those things. In fact, we did follow up on one of those things, which is how we ended up at the pig roast. Uh, some really beautiful people reached out to us and said, Hey, here you're in Oregon. We're having a pig roast. Why don't you come by? Turns out it was happening in Joseph, Oregon, where we were going to be anyway. And uh, so we did. And as always happens, when I connect with someone through the podcast, they turned out to be absolutely fantastic people. Steve and Eddie, Alexis, Butch. Butch isn't really a person. He's a dog, but very cool dog. Very cool. And Beth, uh, Stephen's mom and his dad and Eddie's parents were there. And uh, then a bunch of people, other people rolled up in, on Harleys. Turned out we actually had lots of friends in common with them. There were photographers and uh, actors and people living in Venice, California. And so the whole thing just ended up being this really great party um, in the middle of nowhere that came out of nothing and uh it was just fantastic anyway james nash met him there standing by the fire very unassuming dude i think uh he was introduced as like a local guy who grew up around here and i thought oh that's cool you know a dude you know from joseph oregon probably hasn't traveled much grew up on a ranch and uh you know here he is mixing with these people up from LA and uh flew in from the east coast and this must be uh you know sort of strange and interesting for him well as generally happens when I make assumptions about people I'm fucking wrong this guy's been all over the place he was in Afghanistan he was in Congo he was in Somalia um he's uh I think what was the word non-commissioned officer or commissioned officer? I forget, but he was an officer, a captain, obviously. he. Um, we talk about his experiences in Afghanistan. He commanded um tank platoon, uh, I believe, and um, saw a lot of action and, uh, yeah, has a very nuanced, um, thoughtful, and informed sense of things, uh, of of parts of the world I know nothing about. And I mean that geography in terms of geography and also in terms of experience. <clears throat> I'm about as far from a Marine as you can get. Um, so anyway, I was really happy that he was willing to, to hang out and chat, uh, the next morning. And, and, um, if you want to see the far, the, the, what the project that they're doing there, um, you can check out, uh, what is it? Crow Creek, Oregon, I think is the handle on, uh, Instagram. There are some photos of the pig roast there and, and, uh, some of the things they're doing there. Steven, uh, you can follow him directly. I am Steven Smith. That's S T E P H E N Smith. Um, <clears throat> he's got a couple things going on. He's a photographer, quite successful. I take it, um, beautiful shots in his Instagram feed. And, uh, he also has a CBD 
company. I think it's called Onda Wellness. They're on social media as well. So check them out. Uh, and they're, he and his buddy Eddie are investing their money in this land, in this beautiful place. And they're, uh, right now there's nothing there. There's an outhouse and a tent and um, they're starting to build. They put up some fences and they're going to just, as they save some money, they're going to sink it in and uh, they've got well water and views to die for. So at the moment, it's very minimalist and uh, it's a hell of a project. I'm really looking forward to seeing it develop. So check that out at Crow Creek, Oregon on Instagram. All right. Anything else I need to tell you before we get into this? That's probably about it. I've got some stuff to rant about, but I can save that for another episode. I want to get this one done and uh, got a bunch of other stuff to deal with today. Uh, T-shirts, lots of T-shirts been going out. And hey, I keep meaning to say this, but special shout out to all you people down there in Australia. What is up with you guys? You are buying. I mean, the shipping is expensive. I'm sorry for that. We charge what they charge us. We're not making any money on the shipping. But for some reason, half the T-shirts mom sends out every week go to Australia. So, hey, all praise be to you Australian people. I don't know why this podcast is popular in Australia, given the fact that I, I'm not Australian. We don't generally talk about Australian things. Although Midnight Oil was my favorite band for years, uh, and, and I probably most of what I know about Australian culture I learned from <laughs> Midnight Oil songs, and my buddy Sean, who's now in Byron Bay, I believe. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I really like Australia. I like Australian people. I like the sort of good-humored, no-bullshit approach to life uh, that I've seen reflected in Australians. It's it's kind of like if you mixed England and Spain, somehow you'd come up with Australia. There's there's a an appreciation for pleasure, uh and uh which I which is sort of doesn't fit real well with um, you know, the sort of British culture and the Americans uh, I think hewed closer to the British model in that respect, feeling guilty and everything's got to be about work. And Australians are more chill than, you know, happy to go on the dole for a while. And there's not a lot of shame about taking some time off and going and traveling. In fact, that's sort of expected. Um, it just kind of feels like Australians have a healthier relationship to pleasure and sunshine and happiness. And um, so... The fact that this podcast is popular down under makes me very happy. So shout out to you folks. Uh, what else do I have to tell you? This is another commercial free episode, of course, as they all are. If you want to uh, support that kind of endeavor, please consider supporting the podcast through patreon.com where you just enter your credit card one time and tell them, give Chris five bucks a month or 20 bucks a month or 50 bucks a month or one buck a month or whatever you can afford. It's a monthly thing and uh, you don't have to worry about it. Again, you get confirmations every month so you won't forget about it and end up you know, moving on with your life and giving me a dollar a month for the rest of time. But 
Uh, it's not something that's a hassle. You do it once and then you don't need to worry about it. You can also support the podcast through my Amazon affiliate link. Sorry, not support the podcast because Amazon doesn't want anyone to be under the impression that they support the content of this podcast or any other podcast. So let me rephrase that. You can support me and Casilda and our children, which we don't have, um, through the Amazon affiliate link. That will put food into the mouths of our non-existent children, clothe them, send them to school so that we can then turn our attention to other endeavors like, oh, I don't know, maybe a podcast. But you're not directly supporting the podcast by using that Amazon affiliate link that you will find at my website, thatchrisryan.com or tangentiallyspeaking.com. You'll see it there. Just click on that sucker and go ahead and order whatever you were going to order and a little cut of Amazon's profit margin will come this away. I think that's all I have to say. Oh, I was on a podcast called Trend Following. Very strange. I mean, I'm not really recommending you go listen to it um, unless you just can't get enough of me talking about bonobos and shit. But... um, it's probably material that you've heard covered elsewhere, but it was interesting. The guy is an investment guru. His name is Michael Covell, C-O-V-E-L. And he reached out and said he'd just read Sex at Dawn recently. He's based in um, Singapore, I think. And um, he wanted to have me on his podcast. And I looked at his podcast and he's had all these Nobel Prize winning economists on there and like serious heavy hitters. And so I thought, all right, why not? I don't know. I mean, if you're going to have Nobel Prize winners and invite me, I guess that's a party I'll go to. I'll probably not fit in, but what the hell, I'll go. And uh, so I did the podcast and it was good. He's He asked a lot of intelligent questions and we had a, a good conversation. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, check him out. Um, if you're a financial type person and you're... Uh, Looking for some intelligent input, you might want to check out Michael Covell, the Trend Following Podcast. All right, that's it. I'm going to save the rest of my ranting for the next episode, which will be with the great Abby Martin, who has a diametrically opposed view of American foreign policy from Captain James Nash. But uh, what I love about this podcast is getting people in a space where it doesn't matter if we agree. It's not about agreeing. It's not about uh, negotiating. As James says at one point, uh, disagreement's fine as long as you're coming from uh, an informed perspective and you're, uh, I forget the word he used, but it's, uh, you know, polite. If If you're polite and kind, which I think pretty much everybody I've had on this podcast has been, it doesn't matter if we agree. What matters is that we uh, can sit down together and respect each other. And I certainly respect this guy. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm going to play a song you have probably heard before on this podcast by a guy who listens to the podcast, Ed Dupas, D-U-P-A-S. The song is A Good American Life. Listen to the words, people. Catch you next time 
hope everything's going great in your world. I wake up in the morning, the alarm clock tells me when. Pour a cup of coffee and hit the road again. Find the nearest freeway. Yeah, I got places to be. That sounds like a good American life to me. And I'm heading to the office. Oh, the job side over the mill. Time to make some money. Yeah, time to pay some bills. Cause they're charging me for things that I to get for free That sounds like a good American life to me That sounds like a good American life to me Just trying to catch my breath So I can tell myself I'm free Feels like I'm running in circles Guess I'll wait and see That sounds like a good American life to me Now we got ships in the go Yeah, we got them in Japan Got boots on the ground in Germany and Afghanistan and they got families and loved ones And kids they ain't never seen That sounds like a good American life to me That sounds like a good American life to me Just trying to catch my breath So I can tell myself I'm free Feels like I'm running in circles Guess I'll wait and see That sounds like a good American life to me Keep waiting on a whistle When everyone will stop But they keep right on Telling us there's room Up at the top So I'm getting up tomorrow Guess that's how it's gonna be That sounds like a good American life to me That sounds like a good Sounds like a good American life to me. Sounds like a good American life to me. Okay, boys and girls, here we are in a field on a hilltop overlooking Joseph, Oregon. And I'm sitting here with James Nash, 
who I met last night by fire at a pig roast. Yeah. This is as spontaneous and organic as the shit can get. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't talk a lot last night because we talked enough that I realized I wanted to do a podcast with you and you agreed to do it. And then we sort of like avoided further conversation so we could keep it fresh. Yeah. I even avoided eye contact. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed you were touching me though. You're rubbing up against me a few times there. <laughs> well, you know, take what you can get sometimes. <laughs> that was you, wasn't it? Um, so, uh, okay, here's here's what I know about James Nash. Captain, U.S. Marine Corps. Right. Uh, and that was one of the things I that made me think I wanted to do a podcast with you. And the other thing I know is that you're uh, a guide uh, hunting and fishing. Right. Is that right? Yeah. And you grew up around here. You have a ranch. Uh, what's it called? Six Ranches? Yeah, we have the Six Ranch, which is, you know, just about 20 minutes away from where we are right now. And it's been in, in my family since 1884. So I'm the fifth generation of my family to live there and raise cattle and 1884. Fish. So you're descended from the Indian killers. You know, they actually, uh, the Nez Perce were gone um, fairly freshly at that point. But yeah, I think... Uh, <laughs> I think we came out after that period. Yeah, I, I don't hold it against you. My family, I'm sure five generations ago, my family was doing some shit that uh, I wouldn't be proud of. But, uh, hell, one generation ago. <laughs> but uh, this is a uniquely beautiful part of the world. Do you, where did your family come from? Do you, do you know the, the story, how they got here? Right, they came from Scotland through North Carolina um, and fought in the Civil War and then moved west after that on the southern side yeah okay uh and then they came out here after the civil war wagon train they did yeah um and this valley here wasn't discovered for for quite a long time um there were some settlements nearby on the other sides of the mountains but as you can see here we're we're really hemmed in uh from a geography standpoint so it, it took a little bit longer for this area to get settled, and most of the Oregon Trail just went past us. Uh, right, right. Do you, uh, people can see on my Instagram feed what we're looking at, because I've been taking pictures of these, of these mountains for the last three days. Do you get, like, does this remain amazingly beautiful for you, or do you, does this just home? It's both. I'm... I'm constantly amazed by it and and try to stay really tuned in with with how it's changing, you mm -hmm. know, given given the seasons and and what the winter was like and you know it, everything modifies it. So it's it's never like you're looking at the same place twice because it's yeah. different from how it was yesterday. Right. Right or even this time last year. Oh, way different from that, yeah. Yeah. Are you seeing like gradual global warming climate change stuff happening here man that's a that's a good question i don't think so every year is different from every other year hmm. and i don't know that it trends in one direction or another here so we had our our driest winter and driest summer um in history followed by one of our wettest and coldest right so so the extremes are kicking in it seems yeah maybe i i don't know i you know i've been reading that animal migrations are changing certainly insects butterflies some bird path migrations are changing i don't know if, if that applies to elk and the other animals that you're tuned into yeah elk have really turned on in the past 40 years we've we've seen an increase in the elk populations all throughout the intermountain west 
and we've seen a decline in mule deer and a rise in whitetail deer. Hmm. And there, there is some evidence to suggest that climate may have something to do with that, um, partially due to the physiology of the animals, but also due to different ways that uh, the agriculture is being implemented in, in some of these wilder places. Hmm. I got you. So you grew up here on the ranch, you're raising cattle, what else? We, else? we raise cattle and horses, um, we have some sheep, we have chickens, just kind of the, the standard fare for ranches. Right. Um, our cattle are, are all grass-fed, organic, salmon-friendly, combat-free. Were you doing that before it became fashionable? <laughs> we were. Yeah. we're. We've always done that, and, and then it became cool. Um, so we never had to make a transition, which was nice. You said combat friendly. What's that mean? It's a joke. Oh, okay. I thought that had something to do with the way they were killed. No. Do no. you know, uh, there was a woman, uh, Temple Grandin, you ever heard of her? Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, yeah. She designed the sort of the, uh, I don't know what you call it, the slaughterhouse system, I guess, to, to minimize trauma for the animals. Yeah, minimize stress. Um yeah, but beyond designing the the actual entrance into these these kill facilities, she also uh, did a lot with just the way we we build these these chutes and pens to to work work the cattle whenever they need to be doctored or, or whatever. And mm. um, she just was able to kind of tune into her own uh, her own animalistic self and and think about things from an animal's perspective and yeah. in a way that a lot of people can't yeah do you think you can having spent so much time with them sometimes um i i certainly try to our cattle i was thinking about this yesterday just driving up this dirt road here uh they all turned and looked at us and you know they they seem compared to cattle that you see on feedlots they seem a lot more aware and uh curious yeah they're they're a smart animal um they're not going to solve any any uh math problems or win any <laughs> spelling contests but uh they they survive out here through harsh climates and predators and they're out here in like the winter that. oh yeah huh yeah I, I remember reading somewhere that uh bison were much better suited to the winters than the cows will all freeze up but the bison will make it through bison definitely have a a thicker coat that helps them survive cold better one of the interesting things about bison which there's lots of interesting things about them but when it's uh when there's a storm they'll face into it right um to kind of coat some of that uh that snow and in, into their hair around their neck and that will help insulate them further oh right have you do you guys raise bison out here there are some bison ranches here um that are that are just raised for their meat so the you grew up here you got a high school here in joseph i went to high school in enterprise and i also spent a year in norway as an exchange student when i was in high school that's interesting yeah how'd that come up did you choose norway or did I, i did i I knew some Norwegians that I thought were cool people. I'd heard rumors about, you know, what Norwegian girls looked like, which was, you know, <laughs> high priority for a high school kid. Right. And uh, and I also, you know, imagined that it would be similar to Alaska, which was a place that I'd romanticized in my mind a lot. Huh. Well, how was it? It was great. It was an awesome experience. It was terrible food, super cold weather. Um, but I have more friends from that one year in Norway than I have from 
all of high school. Really? Huh. Yeah, yeah. I I got to say, it's strange. I had uh, an opportunity to do, a, I think it was an AFS exchange. Is that what you did? That's the program I used. Yeah. Um, we hosted kids from other countries, mm-hmm. and my parents weren't, my mother was involved, and they were like, hey, if you want to do it, you know, it'd be great for you. And for some reason, I was like, no way, I, I'm not going anywhere. And then the rest of my life, I've been traveling, you know, but for some reason, I think because we moved a lot when I was a kid, so it was like, damn, I just got here. You right. know, I can't, I just made friends. I can't take off again right now. No, if a kid survives a foreign exchange, it's a great launching point into the rest of their lives because they're forced into independence a lot earlier than they would be otherwise. Yeah. However, that transition coming back home and now you've got to do your senior year of high school and you're living with your parents again and you've you've had a taste of freedom and then mm. you have to give it up for for a year. That's pretty tough. So I think there's a there's a diminishing return on on your last year of high school and a lot of kids don't want to spend their senior year abroad because they want to experience their senior year. They think it's going to be some type of penultimate experience that they've been working towards. <laughs> They'll finally um, get laid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if if I were to do it again, I would go my senior year and then just go straight just on roll to college out. from there. Yeah. So did you go to college after? Or? I did. I went to college at Montana Western and I studied literature and writing and I was on the rodeo team. Practical, very yeah. practical skills. Yeah. Literature, writing, and rodeo. Was there a particular genre of literature you were most interested in? Uh, I liked American romance. Um, so what would that, what's American romance? Just 19th century American literature. Oh, okay. The romantic, yeah. right, right. Okay. Yeah. Melville and... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And of, of course, not everybody thinks of American romance as a time period, um, so the classes were pretty heavily weighted towards one gender oh right right so again chasing the women yeah yeah in college can you imagine such a thing yeah yeah i understand western montana is that, where's that bozeman missoula it's in dillon dillon uh, little tiny town there's five thousand people there two thousand of them are students right right it's the uh fly fishing capital of the world ah that's another factor so you're fly fishing you're on the the uh, rodeo team which is funny that there's a team a rodeo is there intercollegiate rodeo competition you bet all right yeah you can win money at it really really cool what was your event i was a bareback rider Uh, and i was not very good at it i was much bull or horse horse okay so So these are unbroken horses or or they're trained to buck trained to buck yeah that's interesting yeah yeah they they tend to really enjoy it and when you are training a bucking horse, um, a lot of people either use use dummies or, or you know, people who are dummies that are going <laughs> to fall off, and that encourages the horse a lot. It feels like they're winning because uh, that's the that's the result they're trying to achieve, and then they right. buck harder and harder and harder. Um, and the way the event is scored is half the points uh, go to the horse and half the points go to the rider. The rider for doing a good job, making it eight seconds, and the horse for uh, doing a good job and trying to make it in less than eight seconds right huh did you fuck yourself up doing that totally yeah yeah i broke my neck i broke my nose dislocated shoulders sprains everywhere i had two bags one one bag would be 
like my bareback rigging and my rodeo kit um and the other was just various splints and braces and stuff like that that i'd incurred from previous injuries that you know i thought i might have to use again it's a rodeo is a really silly thing to do um but it's a heck of a lot of fun when when you're young and and uh and and feel like nothing can get you so even after you broke your neck you kept going i did yeah i I walked out of the arena you know there's a real sense of of like pride or or machismo or whatever um if if you can walk out of the arena you do it whether you've got the legs to carry or the nervous system to to make you go or not so as soon as i got out of the arena i got on a stretcher and went to the hospital but um yeah it's just how you roll i wouldn't have lasted very long out here <laughs> I mean, you and I, the, the only place our lives intersect is that literature class. I think. <laughs> you know, that was almost a default because I can't do math in public. So, you know, what's left? You can't do math in public? Sure, who can? Can you do it in private? Not really. <laughs> I never thought of math as a private affair. Uh, yeah. All right, so, so I'm trying to trace the trajectory. Why literature? I mean, you say it's a default, but... Like I'm, I'm getting this image of you as like this macho, hard ass kid, you know. Although going to Norway kind of softens that a little bit. That's not a real macho, hard ass thing to do. No, not since all the Vikings died. I think it used to be a little <laughs> yeah. bit more rugged, but yeah, I, I and, don't know that they made it. You're vulnerable. The last... You're a kid. You're yeah. alone. You're living with a family. I mean, yeah, and it it was it was an interesting time period because that's when we invaded Iraq. Ah. So getting an outside perspective on our country while we went to war Hmm. was was a very formative experience because had i been here it would have been inside this this echo chamber of support and i never would have considered anything else so which you're talking the second erasian invasion of iraq yeah um, 2000 under george bush younger right 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 yeah i remember the first see i'm that old you gotta like specify which iraqi invasion we're talking about here you know it gets it gets confusing i was guiding a trip a couple years ago for a bunch of high school kids and uh this girl who was a high school graduate um asked me if i'd fought in the war of 1980 (laughs) the war of 1980 and uh you know there's a couple things that are wrong with that i'm not that old yeah and uh and there was no war of 1980. Well, let's see. That was Reagan was elected in 1980, so they were probably, you know, there's always a war in this country. <laughs> she was wrong. There's you don't have to defend this gal. <laughs> she should have paid more attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there was shit going down in Central America in the early 80s. The Contras and Sandinistas and the death squads in El Salvador. That was, that was a pretty bloody time. But yeah, you're right. There was no war per se. So, okay, so you saw what what the reaction, I imagine, in Norway was, you fucking Americans, what's wrong with you? Well, they protested. Kids refused to go to school, yeah. um, you know, walking around in oh, the street. Oh, that'll show them. Yeah. Norwegian kids aren't going to school. Maybe yeah. we need to stop yeah, this. stop invasion. the show. Let's, let's reconsider some things. <laughs> yeah. I've never seen a protest before. Uh, I mean, you can imagine you just don't see much of that around here. I mean, what are people even going to protest? bad weather and yeah, tourism right yeah right so what wh- how did that affect you did, did it change your because see i i mean i'm burying the lead here you then joined the military at some point i did i did um so i think it strengthened my resolve and in, in my patriotism and, and sense of duty 
and it, it, it put me up against the point where I was going to have to make a decision one way or another. And I was going to have to say, no, I don't, I don't support this or yes, I do. And I'm willing to be alienated from all of these people that I'm surrounded by and, and take what comes from that. So which way did you go? That it's, I alienated myself in in, Norway, in in Norway. Yeah. Um, at at least in that regard. And, And my friends were still respectful of me and, and compassionate for where I was coming from. Um, but that didn't, change their opinion on the matter and and that was fine and that was probably the first time that that I had really separated myself from all of my peers um, on on something that was that divisive hmm interesting because you said you have more friends from that year in Norway than you do from here so obviously it didn't poison your friendship no you can disagree with a friend as long as you do so with a strong knowledge base and you're cordial about it hmm what was your argument my argument yeah like why was it when you got into these talks with them and they're saying you know america you're always invading other countries you're taking their resources this is colonialism you you know all this bullshit about defending freedom is just a cover story for resource extraction and exploitation what what did you reply with i just brought up world war ii and the fact that they might be speaking german if uh the u.s hadn't gotten involved yeah yeah but is that really a counter argument it was the best one i had at the time (laughs) that was a long time ago in a totally different situation you know saddam hussein wasn't going to invade norway no that wasn't happening but it it is the case of um of one country standing up for another country and you know hindsight is what it is and there's there's different arguments to be made now Hmm. but with what I had then, 9-11 had just occurred. That felt really raw. And, you know, we're, we're looking for something to blame. And I, I was on board with that. Were you in Norway when 9-11 happened? No, right after. Right, because that was September, I guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. September 11th, right? Yeah, I was in Spain when that happened. I was teaching high school at the time, actually. Really? Yeah, supposed to be teaching American history from 1860 on, and that happened the first week of class, and it's like, all right, forget the syllabus, forget everything. We're going to talk about oil and energy and 20th century geopetropolitics, and because you guys are never going to forget this, right? And even at the time, they didn't they didn't understand. You know, it was like, trust me, you'll never forget this. You know, yeah. Wild. So you came back from Norway, you finished high school, you went to college, you did your literature and rodeo degree, and then you went into the military right after? That's right. So I applied for officer candidate school, um, which if you have a college degree, that's the route that you can go. Um, And shipped off to Quantico, and officer candidate school is essentially a a 10-week-long job interview. And it's quite a bit different from boot camp because they're they're screening and evaluating you for leadership potential and you can both be cut from the program and you can quit so we we started out with uh you know 600 guys in the company uh there's 60 something guys in my platoon and interestingly there was only myself plus three guys who had ever had a job before and those other three guys their previous job was being an enlisted marine Hmm. So I was the only 
fresh college graduate who'd ever worked before. Those guys were going into their first job, which I just can't even imagine. Hmm. Uh, but we ended up graduating 23 out of those 60 something guys. And those guys, uh, we, we all became commissioned officers in the Marine Corps. So is that program specific to the Marine Corps? Uh, other branches have, have similar They're versions. Around. Okay, so right. you had already decided to be a Marine when you That's went right. into that program, right? Yep. And you do this instead of boot camp, or you do this after boot camp, or how's that work? It's just a different route. So okay. it... That that's the the officer's equivalent of boot camp. Okay, but right. when you're enlisted and you show up for boot camp, you're gonna be a marine unless you get broken along the way. Right. Okay. There's no quitting. There's no getting washed out unless you do something you know illegal or or you just straight up can't physically do the job. Hmm. Right. So you made it through that. What year was that? That was 2009. What, what was there a war of 2009? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were, you know, right in the middle of our longest war ever. In Afghanistan. In Afghanistan. Yeah. And uh, you, at that point, did you decide, you mentioned last night you were in, was armor, armor division or something? Yeah, I was a tank officer. Tank so officer. I commanded a platoon of M1A1 Abrams main battle tanks. How many tanks in a platoon? Four tanks and then one thing that looks like a tank that's a recovery vehicle it's called an m88 so that's if a tank gets hit or something it can go in and pull guys out yeah it's got a big crane on it so it can lift uh the tank weighs about 76 tons jesus christ they're an amazing machine amazing machine what kind of mileage does a tank get bad yeah <laughs> it takes a when you hit the button to start it it takes 11 gallons just to start just it to up. Just to start it up. And then we're about two miles or two gallons per mile afterwards. So it holds 504.4 gallons of any type of fuel you can put in it. It'll burn. Oh, really? It's a multi-fuel turbine engine, 1,600 horsepower. How many cylinders? Uh, in the turbine? Yeah. I don't think. Oh, it's a turbine. Yeah. Yeah, there are no. It's not yeah. a, it's not a right. compression combustion engine. Yeah. So how does a turbine engine? I mean, turbines are in air and jet engines, right? Yeah. I never got a straight answer for how it could use any type of fuel. Yeah. Huh. It must just heat it to such a temperature it doesn't matter. Yeah. It just burns whatever the fuck is in there. Suck, squeeze, bang, and blow. Yeah. And then you're, you've got... Uh, See, I'm so fucking ignorant about this stuff, man. I apologize. <laughs> they're they're not grenades. What does it shoot? Oh, it shoots all kinds of shit. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's got so it has a 120 millimeter main gun, and that is a 17 foot seven inch barrel. That's a 120 millimeters on at the inside diameter. It has a wide variety of weapons uh, or or of uh, projectiles that it can shoot from that. Everything from something that looks like a giant shotgun shell to um, bunker busting rounds and armor piercing rounds if you're going up against other tanks. So you train in tank warfare like Soviet. Yeah. You know, but does that ever happen? Tank on tank? Yeah. Well, it happened uh, during Desert Storm. Hmm. The Iraqis um, had some tanks. Yeah, yeah, we we wrecked a bunch of their tanks, and then uh, during the the second invasion, um, we we had a lot of tank fighting there as well. But tank on tank isn't as common um, in modern warfare as you might think, just because we, we have superior firepower and right. people who have tanks don't want to go into a losing battle. And air power would take most of them out anyway, I would think. 
Yeah, air is good, but tanks can hide from aircraft pretty well, mm. um, especially during the day. At, at night, you lose. Because um, of the heat? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. So, uh, how many guys in a tank? Four. Four dudes. And what kind of accuracy does uh, does that gun have, the main gun? Um, one time I hit a very small moving target while I was driving about 30 miles an hour at night, and uh, the target was moving and that was at 3,650 meters meters holy shit so how many miles is that a little over two wow that's incredible and is the does the projectile have like a heat seeking guidance system or you just have to line it up from the tank no there's a ballistic computer on the tank and then there's a there's a redundant uh mechanical system that you can put in inputs Hmm. um to be able to do your own ballistics on the fly right but the, the biggest thing is that the tank is the tank's main gun is gyroscopically stabilized so while you're going over terrain it'll continue staying on target and it will induce the leads that you've given it based on all of your atmospheric data right wind speed and all that yeah yeah, yeah. and i guess your altitude would probably affect the flight as well right yeah, the density altitude. So it's a combination of your altitude and the barometric pressure. Right, right. Humidity has a small role. Wind has a big role. Um, the angle that you're shooting at has a big role. And were you, uh, so you were in charge, I mean, I guess the four guys in the tank have different roles. You have the driver, I guess. is that one? There's a driver. He's the junior guy. He's usually an 18 or 19 year old kid. Oh, really? Um, so all, all of my tanks were older than my tank drivers. <laughs> um, all of the tanks in the Marine Corps are, are hand-me-downs from the Army, mm. um, which is class, just classic Marine Corps. But uh, then you've got a loader. He's He's the next senior guy. And he's got his own machine gun, um, and then he, he, he's in charge of loading all, all the different types of munitions. Then there's a gunner who's in charge of, um, of a coaxial machine gun and the main gun, and then the tank commander who's in charge of everything, and he has a 50 caliber machine gun. Hmm. And then everybody's carrying a rifle and a pistol. If you have to leave the tank. Yeah, and, and sometimes shooting from the tank, um, I, I had to... I had to engage uh, guys with my rifle when my tank was broken more than once. So it breaks down, something goes wrong mechanically, and you get surrounded or attacked or something? Yeah. That must be... So how do you... uh, What kind of conversations do you have, uh, if any, with the guys under... How many guys were under your command there? 24. 24 guys, most of them younger than you. Most of them younger, some of them older. And um, when you're there in Afghanistan, it sort of gets back to what we're talking about in, you know, in your high school experience. Like, do you guys talk about why we're here? Do you talk about the sort of larger political, what the fuck is going on here? Or is it just trying to make it through the day? Man, you get you get lost pretty fucking quick if you start going down that road while you're in country in combat. It's, it's really mission focused. So you're just thinking about what you have to do. And I was always just trying to like make it to the next meal right? and, and, and think, think in short terms or the next mission, just get through this mission, bring everybody back, reset, and then go again. And I did over a hundred missions. I was outside the wire a fucking lot. 
and I can't, I can't even properly describe the anxiety that you have. Um, and it's, it's overwhelming and it's also not really present in your mind. But in Afghanistan, the biggest threat always was IEDs, improvised explosive devices, bombs that they bury in the road, really rudimentary stuff, and they will fuck you up. And that's what has killed and injured a lot of our guys. So the way I try and describe it to people is like, say you're in a room and it's dark and you're barefoot and you've got to walk from one side of the room to the other. And that's your job. And you know that there's 25 mousetraps in there. So think about the level of anxiety you would have with every step going across that room. And then think about one of these mousetraps killing you and all your friends. Yeah. And, and that's kind of, that's what it's like day in and day out. And you never step back and say, why the fuck are we doing this? Afterwards. But yeah. if, you're, if you're doing that while you're in that moment, you've lost focus. And you, you're going to go out there and do that job no matter what. You're, you're a Marine. You're going to do the job. But if you start thinking about stuff like that, why are we doing this? You know, is this important? Um, man, you might have lost your edge and, and that, that can be costly. Hmm. So even just, even doubt and sort of, um, yeah, asking those big questions that in itself can get you killed. Oh yeah. Yeah. Do you want to move? I see you're in the sun. The I'm sun's, okay. You're all right. I'm okay. okay. Thanks. Is this, is this cool to talk about this stuff? I don't want to bring you any anxiety. You know, we can, you know, there's always going to be anxiety in, in talking about this shit and it, it, it is tough to talk about, but it's more important that people ask, um, than it is, you know, how I feel while I'm talking about it. So, um, I, I would rather, you know, I would rather you ask whatever it is that, that you want to know, and then I'll do my best to answer it. Thanks. Um, yeah, and also in this kind of conversation, I'm very conscious of the fact that, A, I'm totally unqualified to even have this conversation because I know nothing about, you know, I have very little exposure to this. Um, I had a couple uncles who were in Vietnam, and that's about as close as I got. Um, but that there are people on the other side of this, a lot of people who served in the military who listen to the podcast. And so, you know, you're part of a community I'm not in, but there are other people here in a way who, who are in that community with you. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is I think I told you last night, I, when I was living in Portland, um, I, people wrote to me and, you know, some vets wrote to me and they're like, yeah, you know, you're bad mouth America sometimes, but you never have any vets on. And it's like, fuck, you're right, man. So I did a whole series and I found it fascinating because, um, you know, I, I think a lot of us tend to stereotype people in the military. And one thing they kept saying to me was like, no, man, there's every kind of person in the military. You know, it's, uh, you know, and they're different guys from different um, branches and you know, obviously very different experiences. But the diversity of experience in, in the military is as wide as anywhere else, I guess. I would say so. It's it's the most diverse environment that I've ever been in. Yeah. And, you know, I'm pretty critical of American foreign policy um, as well. We could talk about that another time, maybe, but not 
the guys on the ground who were I feel a lot of compassion for those guys right you know well you know one of my marines was killed in our first combat mission and uh four others were really seriously injured very seriously injured i I myself was wounded right there um on that first mission on the first mission you know all the ground that we took in afghanistan everything that we seized and held while i was there is currently under taliban rule yeah so you know retrospectively looking back was this worth it obviously not it's not even a question it's not even a question because the answer is is so apparent but in that moment you just have to do everything that you can and you're you're not thinking about you're not thinking about mother america or or patriotism you're you're just trying to do the job yeah and when you're in a position like that where you're invading another country and you, I mean, in retrospect, do you look back at the other guys and say, oh, those guys were fighting for their own country, right? I, th- I, th- I thought about that then. Hmm. And there was one time when I was, uh, when I was guarding this bridge project that we we're trying to build a bridge between two different districts so that one could cross over to the other side so that they got to have a vote, right? We're force feeding democracy. You're, you're going to have an opportunity to vote. Um, there's, there's this great big poppy field in front of me. And these two dudes were out there, um, two, two Afghan guys, and they were weeding the entire field with these little tiny size that were like, um, like a hand hoe with a little sickle on it. And they had a duck walk across this entire field weeding this, enti- this thing. It looked like the most brutal work I've ever seen in my life. And they came over and um, spread out a blanket and sat down to have some tea and some lunch um, about you know 50 meters away from my tank. And I'd been in country for five or six months at that point um i'd already been wounded twice in the hospital twice you know back out doing missions again and i just said fuck it and i got out of the tank and i went over and sat down with them and i grabbed a couple snapples and um you know shared american tea with them and and had some of their tea which made me super fucking sick later on <laughs> and uh you know i can't speak Pashtun and they can't speak English, but I talked about the ranch back home and, you know, pointed out where it was and they talked about whatever they talked about, probably how fucking terrible it is to duck walk across a poppy field weeding all day. And that, that was a great moment for me. And, you know, there's a good chance that the next day those guys tried to kill me and I have to kill them. But we had a good little lunch together and that was, that was the highlight of my year that I spent there. What, the, what does that mean? You know what? I mean, the highlight of your year was the one day you weren't doing what you were sent there to do. Well, who's to say that that's not what I was sent there to do? Maybe that changes. Maybe that one instance changes the way they feel about Americans. And, you know, maybe they're sitting around talking about the one time that they were able to connect with us. And... You know, that that could be the difference between that guy deciding to go out and risk his life, putting an IED in the ground and being like, you know what, I'll wait until the next rotation. These guys are all right. There's no way of knowing what whether um, that was what I was meant to do or not. But that's what I did. Did you ever were you ever in a place in Afghanistan that looked like this? No, 
Yeah, it's not not this green. I know it's very mountainous. But. I was in southern Afghanistan, where most of the fighting is, where most of the poppy is, and it's it's arid. It looks like it looks like a planet that you would desert somebody on mm-hmm. in a Star Wars movie. <laughs> um, it, like prison planet. It is yeah, so hot and so bright, and crippling wind and dust that the dust is so fine it's it's finer than anything that we have here in the states and you know guys sink up to their hips in it and it would pull laced boots off their feet um we called it moon dust and it's just it's wind that has been pulverizing um the rocks of the of the himalayan steppe forever and it's it's just a hostile environment What's it like in a tank when it's 120 degrees outside? Do you have air or, conditioning? Or 130? It's 150 inside the tank, which is the temperature, by the way, that you send the steak back to the kitchen because they overcooked it. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, man. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, there's no it air sucks. conditioning. No, in there's it. no air conditioning, <laughs> and here's why. They don't put air conditioning inside the Marine Corps tanks because if the AC unit went down, that would deadline the tank. And you wouldn't be able to take it out. Right. So they don't put it in. But they do in the Army? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. No shit. They're fancy. So why did you become a Marine? Is this... You don't seem like a super macho dude. You're very laid back (laughs) and all that. But but I guess you just... You keep it all hidden. I don't know. I don't know what I am. I wouldn't know how to categorize myself. I became a Marine because I live in a really cool place. I mean, this, this place means everything to me. And I, I consider Willowa County, where I'm from, to be as much a part of my identity as anything else. Hmm. And I wanted to do something to earn that. Um, hmm. And yeah, would I've would I've rather done, you know, something that had a a longer, more meaningful impact? Yeah, yeah, I definitely would have. But I don't get to pick the timing, right? I went to college. I commissioned. That was the job to do. I did it to the best of my ability. Were you, was your dad in the military? No. Oh, really? So it's not a family tradition? No. I mean, we've we fought in wars periodically. Um, so my granddad was in World War II, Civil War, um, Mexican-American War. But uh, but no, I mean, shit, we had, we had over a decade of war. Like, somebody had to step up and, and go fight it. Well, yeah, that I mean, I respect what you're saying, and and I I envy you feeling that sense of identity with a place, you know, five generations back in the same place. That's pretty cool, and this is an amazing place, no doubt. But I but I also wonder, you know, the idea somebody has to go fight it. That made sense in World War II, but it, to me, it doesn't make sense in these other wars. That's that's fine. You don't have to be the someone. Yeah, well, in these days, I don't. Yeah, there's no draft, right? But I, but I just, it's weird because I know it comes across like I'm being critical, but really, from my perspective, it's like, fuck, dude, I wish you hadn't been hurt for nothing. I wish you hadn't, you know, had to go through that dust and had to be in that tank. And I mean, I know there were good experiences as well, but I wish you and those other guys hadn't had to suffer for something that's 
like, what is it? It's the, as you said, it's Taliban again, and we're not going to fucking stay there forever. And, you know, it's, it's all this artificial, I, I kind of feel like it's all just about making money for Raytheon and General Electric and, you know, and guys like you are suffering for no reason that I can really point to. Here's one example. And I'm, I'm not going to argue against anything that you just said, but there, there are a bunch of folks in that part of the world that really hate Americans and they want to kill us. And, and that's the truth. By having an American presence there, then they don't have to come here to kill us. They can come up against a professional fighting force on their own ground, on their own terms. And, you know, we've, I, I feel like that that was something that we were effective at was by providing them something to sink their teeth into and, and, in, and in doing so it's like um, a sacrificial lamb kind of situation like shoot at us yeah yeah we'll we'll come over there and make it easier for you to shoot at us yeah exactly why not hmm would you rather they come here well, it's going to be pretty hard for a guy, you know, with a handheld Sith in a poppy field to show up in Oregon and come kill somebody, you know, <laughs> that, guy's, yeah. that guy's not getting a visa. Yeah, no, not that guy. Um, but it's, it's really easy to, to underestimate people that, um, that are, that are in that extremely impoverished third world scenario, but they, they've overcome an environment that would kill us in a week. Yeah. No, they're tough. Vietnam. Yeah. You know, they like the Afghanis, the Vietnamese, like, fuck you, Japanese, fuck you, French, fuck you, Americans. Like, we'll take you all on. Yeah. It's well, incredible. An Afghan warlord told Alexander the Great that, you know, he could kill them, but that he would never deprive them of their poverty. <laughs> That's a good line. So how, do, how do you fight against that? Yeah. With, yeah. With difficulty. So what's your feeling about, I, I imagine your feeling about guns is your pro-guns and Second Amendment and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think guns are great. I mean, I, gu- guns are part of my job. Like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an outfitter. Um, so, oh, man. <laughs> that, was, that was a close call with the sneeze right there. Almost sneeze. <laughs> Almost sneeze. I was trying to turn off the mic in time. Um, no, I, I, I carry yeah. a gun for work. Um, right. That's part right. of what I do. I mean, because I, I was thinking... Uh, you know, it's sort of your stereotypical liberal uh, know nothing. I'm uh, I'm skeptical of the gun argument, uh, where you know, well, we'll take we need guns to um, protect ourselves from a, a corrupt government, which is one of the main arguments that you hear. And I always sort of laughed at that because, like, oh yeah, you're going to go up against the military, you know, drones and blah 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 blah. But then you look at a place like Afghanistan or Vietnam, and like, well, the, an armed population is pretty fucking hard to dominate uh, for a long time, no matter how technologically advanced you are yeah especially a guerrilla population yeah but do you think the u.s so let's say the the u.s government like went totally corrupt and we got into that situation could the u.s population stand up to that the way afghanis do i mean they're so tough yeah yeah we could you think so yeah i think we'd do well really yeah why do you think that because I look at the U.S. population and most of the people have, you know, lots of guns or kind of, you know, 
fat, out of shape old dudes, <laughs> you know, who like have fantasies, but they're not training, they're not tough, they're not running around at night, you know, learning tactical shit, you know. They would learn, they'd adapt. They'd learn. And yeah. and not not all of them Lose would make weight. it. <laughs> not all of them would make it. There'd be some hard times. But no, don't you just can't underestimate someone's resilience when when what they hold the most dear is being taken from them. Hmm. And you can reach into into levels of your willpower that that you don't know about and and come out with what you need to survive. Right. Is that one of the most positive things that you took from that experience? Like getting pushed to levels you didn't know you could be pushed to? No, it's the cohesion and the brotherhood with, uh-huh. with, with other Marines. And you hear that from everybody, right? You're not, guys say, oh, you're not fighting for apple pie. You're fighting for the guy to the left and the right of you. And, uh, and it's said so much that it sounds like a drumbeat, but it's true. And when you, when you have a bunch of guys around that, that are absolutely willing to die for each other, it's special. Hmm. That, that's a neat place to be in. Yeah. Um, and the way that you can communicate with people like that is something that you can't experience anywhere else in culture. Our society lacks it everywhere else. Yeah. Yeah, unless you're in a criminal gang or something, maybe, or cops. Were you tempted to get into law enforcement when you came back? No. No, I was not. Mm. Do a lot of guys do that? Uh, I don't know those statistics. I couldn't speak to it. Um, of my Marines that got out, I, I harped really hard on education and professionalism. So um, the majority of my Marines that got out and got, went and got college degrees, one of them um, is working on his PhD right now. So, uh, yeah, they're just pursuing professional lives. You miss being in that position of sort of guiding and protecting guys under you? Yes and no. Um, for the Marines that are that were in my command that are still in the Marine Corps, that are still rotating through deployments, it, it absolutely kills me that, that I'm not there to, to help those guys. And for the ones that are out, I'm still doing everything I can to make sure that they continue to succeed in life. So I just see my commitment to those individuals and to that unit as a lifelong commitment. Mm. But, you know, just the, the position of authority and, and responsibility, um, that's not something that I miss. Yeah. It, it, it's a sure enough. Leadership is a burden um, and it's a privilege and it, it takes a lot from you. Yeah. How long were you in there? Five years. Five years. And when did you get out? 2014. So you've been out four years now. Was it hard transitioning out? Yeah. Yeah. There were things that were hard. Um, once we returned to the States, we kind of realized, uh, that the, the severity of my injuries was quite a bit worse than than uh, than how they are assessed in country, so I was basically in convalescence for about eighteen months, and uh, that that probably eased my transition because I had a bunch of a bunch of time on my hands to uh, you know to go fishing, go go fish offshore, go f- go mm. for a walk in the woods, you know, kind of get my mind right. 
these uh, these National Guard units and reserve units and stuff that as soon as they come home, they, they just get dropped off at, at Home Depot and, and go back to selling two-by-fours or whatever. They have a really hard time. Yeah. Um, th- so having a, a longer transition definitely helped me. But there, there are still... There are still things that that I'm really militarily marked by. Um, punctuality, for example, like I'm I'm very very concerned about showing up on time. My wife has finally beaten it out of me that I don't have to show up 15 minutes early. That in fact that makes some people uncomfortable. So I'm getting better. Um, but holding other people accountable in the civilian world is also really difficult because people don't do it. Mm. And you know, there's a lot of a lot of kid gloving that goes on. Mm. Uh, and indirect communication, things like that. So there's there's definitely been a transition into learning how to be a civilian again, but for the most part, I, I think I'm doing okay. Mm. Cool. Did you have uh, PTSD to deal with as well as physical yeah. stuff? Yeah, I still do. Yeah. yeah, that's a constant thing. That That's forever. Yeah. How does it manifest? Sleeplessness? Yeah, mostly it's a, a constant headache, um, have a hard time concentrating. Mm. Uh, you know, you can you, you can have panic attacks and, and feel like your your engines are getting revved up while you're neutral type mm. thing. Yeah. But just shit like that. Yeah. Is it getting better? Uh, I don't know. I think I'm just getting used to it. <laughs> yeah, I, hard to know sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that that's one of those things where if I had to give you an honest answer, I'd ask somebody else that was around me a lot. Hmm. Like, Hey, feel like I'm doing better. Right. But I, I think it just is what it is right now. And I'm functioning. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have a great marriage. I'm running a couple of businesses. I'm, I'm doing all right. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a bitch. PTSD sucks. Traumatic brain injury sucks. Um, you know, not being able to physically do the things that you used to that's tough and people talk about like this establishing a new normal or, or what that's just a bunch of horseshit like you don't ever feel like you have a new normal you you want your old normal you remember your old normal and it was nice how old are you i'm 32 yeah yeah, but see, establishing a new normal is part of getting older. <laughs> is it? <laughs> oh, fuck yeah, Oh, dude. no, I suck at it. Get used to it. Okay. Start start working on it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, aging gracefully is all about, in my opinion, it's, it's about not letting go of, you know, you're never going to be 25 again. I'm never going to be as fit as I was. And I was no fucking athlete or anything or Marine, but just... Uh, you know, I, I see a lot of angry older men, you know, and there's this like anger. And I think part of the anger is, fuck, I'm not 25 anymore. Right. I can't run up that fucking hillside anymore. And it makes them feel emasculated. And, you know, there's like a deep insult. And, and to me, it's always, and maybe this is just my, uh, you know, lax approach to things, but I, I always try to like relocate your sense of self-worth away from what you're losing. Let it go because that's not what makes you cool anyway, right? You can't ride bucking horses the way you used to, but that doesn't mean you're less of a man. You're more of a man than you were at that age, you know? So, yeah, 
I think about that a lot, especially with this podcast, because I think most of the audience is about half my age. So I'm, I'm. You're trying to let them know that. Well, I'm just aware. <laughs> you know, I'm aware, and and a, a lot of my friends are half my age, right? And so I, I'm more aware of my perspective, the difference in my perspective, than I would be if I was just hanging out with people my own age I think right not sure not sure you only live one life so who knows how it would be different but well I'll check back in with you later on and see see what kind of normal we're dealing with (laughs) yeah I always you know I think one of the things I've talked about is I think that people look at life and think they're in a lake and you can just sort of swim to whatever part of the lake you want and they're confused because they don't they try to swim over to that outcropping and they never get there it's because they don't realize that life's a river it's not a lake and you know there's a navajo expression it's easiest to ride a horse in the direction it's going you know like turn face downstream so you don't hit your head on the rocks and just use your effort to sort of uh, guide your uh, trajectory in the flow because you're not going to stop it. You're not going to stop aging. You're not going to stop you know the things that happen in life. So the best bet is to use your energy to just sort of avoid the the things you can avoid. You know, I'm totally on board with that. And with the amount of time I've spent guiding river trips, oh. you have you have time to think about that stuff. Yeah, and you know you you start to consider whether what you're doing is is a metaphor or reality and uh <laughs> what's the answer yeah i don't i think it varies <laughs> yeah. day by day but when you're floating down a river yeah. uh yeah it definitely feels like that and i've i've had very similar sentiments while doing so and you get in the the peacefulness of some of these deep remote canyons and uh you get in a in a pool that's two miles long and there's not a not a sound and you know you don't dip the oars in anymore and you get time to to look inside yourself and think about what's going on it's a good place for it yeah yeah i'd love to do a long river trip someday i've never done that i think that's the ideal way to travel it's pretty nice yeah you know you're not humping the all the weight you can pack a lot of shit you couldn't take on a backpacking trip get to camp on a beach camp on a beach you're just remote no roads anywhere exactly yeah you're talking about the salmon river by the way is that what it is yeah yeah you got 600 miles of river right there oh man all within one state and it's the longest undammed river in the country so they get their their natural high water low water every year and after that high water comes down every single corner is a white sand beach that's just yours Mm. it's real nice wow all right, next summer. All right. Maybe we'll hook that up. Cool. So let's talk about hunting a little bit. So Yeah, you, let's talk about hunting. Yeah, it's uh You got a bow. I got a bow. I got sort of half a bow. I, I got the bow without the <laughs> stabilizer, the sights, the you know, all the other stuff I need. Yeah. Um but yeah, I got the bow and uh, I got a buddy who uh, has access to some farm, some ranch land with wild boars and stuff that we can go and hunt. And uh, and also Hawaii and so, yeah. I as I said last night, I I'm one of these people. Do you think has has Rogan revolutionized hunting or? <laughs> I mean, the Rogan effect is pretty amazing because he's a you know to me he's a buddy of mine. Yeah. Um, and 
I didn't know who he was when we became friends. And so the whole Rogan effect is kind of um, invisible to me in some ways, I guess. Uh, but, you know, like the float tank industry. Right. He basically started it, restarted uh-huh. it by being into it. And suddenly there are float tank centers in cities across the country. So I, I, I don't know if he's had that kind of effect on hunting or because now there are all these hunting shows on TV. And I know a lot of people were hunting, but it's it's declining in popularity uh, isn't it like the number of hunting licenses that are granted each year is going down? No. No? It's no. not true? Oh, no. I thought I'd read that somewhere. It, it, that might be a state-by-state. State. Um, certainly not here. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Okay. But, so. but yeah, what, what impact has Joe Rogan had on hunting? Um, I don't know, but it's been a positive one, yeah. especially because he came from a background where he didn't do it. And then he got into it and he started to understand it. And then he got really into it. And um, and he's realizing what a powerful impact it can have on your life. Uh, and since since he does have a large audience and, and, you know, he's talking to a lot of people that might not be exposed to hunting otherwise, it's great for folks to hear from him. Um, you know, they, they, they trust him for the most part, depending on, you know, how, how buggy, bug-eyed he is at, at that given moment. <laughs> but, uh, no, he, he's good for hunting. I'm, I'm yeah. glad he's getting after it. He's just well, getting started. Yeah, when I first met him, I remember him saying, like, uh, this year my, my um, goal is by the end of the year my family will not be eating any meat that I didn't kill. And he did it. Yeah. He's so badass, that guy. He's another species for me. Like, I forget about it. I I like just watching it. But you don't have to go very far back into human history before that's everybody. Oh, yeah. Sure. I mean, even not even hunter-gatherers, just farmers were eating their own meat. Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, so you and I were talking a little, this is the phrase that we didn't want to be using too much today, but last night we were talking about how the experience of killing an animal is different for someone who grew up doing it. Um, Like, I've never killed anything bigger than a salmon, Mm -hmm. Uh, and even that kind of freaked me out a little bit. And uh, I was on my way up to Alaska, and then I gutted like 10,000 salmon in a cannery, so I can gut the shit out of a salmon. (laughs) Um, But my wife, who grew up in Africa, she's like, yeah, I'll kill it, like, whatever, give me a chicken, it's dead, you know? she'll gut it and make dinner and you know it's like no big deal it's just where you come from what you what you're accustomed to i guess but then you were saying that you never really lose the or at least in your case uh an emotional component to to killing an animal there is an emotional an emotional component and it's it's a difficult emotion to describe and when you're experiencing it it doesn't feel like a bunch of emotions converging it feels like something that's pure um, and singular mm. that doesn't have a name about them all the time and and i love watching them i love being around them i love calling elk and having a conversation and, and being an, an active member of their life cycle they're an amazing animal and i love killing elk and if i get to kill big mature bull elk that that i was able to convince i was an elk too and he's coming over to fight with me and i can do that with my bow quickly and ethically there's nothing better for me 
There's nothing better for me. And I, I do feel sorry for him and, and I feel sad, but I also feel incredibly happy and there's an overwhelming sense of, of elation. And I feel very proud of myself for this difficult thing that I've accomplished. And, you know, this is all, all coming together at once. And that's that, that's that emotion that is so difficult to describe because we just don't have that. I, I don't experience it with anything else in my life. Did you experience anything similar to that in war? No. And the the thing about, if, if I can be blunt, the thing about killing people in war is that it's a different experience each time. And sometimes it feels as impersonal as ordering a sandwich at a bar. And other times it feels like you would rather kill yourself. So that... That that is that is separate in my mind. It's a different category, um, and and I I don't know quite how to how to describe what changes that from from one occurrence to the next, but there is a big change mm-hmm. each time. And there's a consistency with uh, the hunting with the animals. Yeah, even different kinds of animals. Totally. Huh. But we can't ever escape this concept of charismatic megafauna, where we think that one animal is more important than another. Like we have a stronger feeling about it. And if they're, if they're a bigger animal, people have a stronger feeling to it. If they've ever been in a Disney movie, people have a much stronger connection to that. But who's to say that, that a bumblebee is less important than a kangaroo? Yeah. I think about that sometimes how, like I, I imagine the emotions of killing something and I'm driving down the road and there are 10,000 bucks <laughs> bouncing off the windscreen, you know? Yeah. And, you know, you rarely have someone come out and hate on you for killing a fish that you're going to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a turkey, no, turkey don't have souls. Nobody's going to give you hate for that. Kill a deer, well, that, that one's getting a little bit closer. Some people are going to get upset. Kill a bear, Oh man, people are going to lose their minds. Hmm. Even though the bear will fuck you up. The bear will fuck you up. The bear will eat that deer while it is alive. Yeah. That's not cool, but but that's just not how people feel about bears. You know, they yeah. don't look at a bear, a, a big boar, you know, they think that it's going to like stand up on its back legs and start singing. Uh, they, they don't see it coming up to a sow and, and young cubs and eating those cubs so that she can come back into heat so he can breed her. Yeah. Like the, it's a cold, hard world out there. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, I heard a story. Someone was, we were talking about you earlier and someone said you killed a bear last year and you ended up making chapstick from the tallow. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a legend? No, that's uh I love the the mythology. <laughs> <laughs> no, we always render out the lard from from bears and we primarily use it to treat leather and it it makes the best pastries in the world. Like pastries. Oh my gosh. Really? Yeah, bear fat pie crust. I I would kill the last bear on the planet because he's lonely and because he'd make a great pie. <laughs> yeah, he's the um, last one. Not the last two. Yeah, not the last two. That's weird. But uh but the last one I would definitely turn him in a, into an apple pie. But no, this year we killed a killed a good sized bear, and uh, I gave the cook at our hunting camp the uh, the lard, and and she made some into chapstick. So, oh, okay, yeah. so it's essentially accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. they got close. It's black bear around here. Black I guess. bear, yeah. yeah. Five hundred pounds. Mm-hmm. 
No, no. Um, if a bear ever gets over 400 pounds in Oregon, it's it's a rarity. Hmm. Um, most of our bears are fairly small. Hmm. Have you been up to Alaska? I have, yeah. 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 Pretty, Fishing, yeah. Pretty amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's... It's the last best place. I haven't been there since the 80s, but I went up, I hitchhiked up two summers when I was in college and just after college. It was magical. Fantastic. Yeah. Down the Kenai Peninsula. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the blue in the Kenai River is, is what blue should be. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's fantastic. Um, cool. So you're leading uh, fishing and uh, hunting trips now. Is that your main gig? And you got the, the ranch? You're running the ranch? Yeah. I'm, I uh, work, work on the family ranch. You know, not one person's in charge of it. It's just mm. all the family. Mm. Um, and then I manage wildlife on, on another ranch and, and do some guiding out there. And then for the most part, I'm just teaching people how to hunt and fish and go down rivers. So what do you think about, so somebody like me, uh, who wants to have a hunting experience, um, me going into it with a bow, is that, um, am I being irresponsible because I'm more likely to hurt an animal and not kill it? You're only being irresponsible if you, go from practicing to hunting before you're proficient and that's the case with any weapon like you can wound an animal with a with a rifle or with a tank or with a motorcycle just as easily um but you Mm. you just have to know what you're doing so no it doesn't matter archery kills are incredibly lethal and very quick Mm. very very quick um so a, a good shot on an animal is, is going to kill him somewhere between 12 and 30 seconds. And it's, it's quiet. Sometimes they don't even run. They don't know that anything has happened. It's, it's as peaceful a way to go as you could have hmm. if done correctly. If you make a bad shot, that's the worst case scenario. And, you know, you do everything you can to avoid it, but sometimes it's going to happen. And that's that's where you have to remove yourself from it and realize that what you're doing is an old old game and you're now re-entering the natural order of things and if that animal um dies it's going to be eaten not by you but it's just biomass just like us yeah yeah it'll it's part of the cycle but no you're you're getting into archery um, you shoot and you shoot and you shoot and you seek out professionals and you get trained and you get the best gear that you can and you step into the woods and it is an uncertain outcome, but you just do everything that you can to, to make sure that you've done your part to make sure that when you pull the trigger that you harvest that animal in the most ethical way you can. Clean death. All right. That's all we can hope for. Any of us. Yeah. Yeah. All right, listen, I know you got a wedding to go to. Your yeah, my little getting, sister's getting married this afternoon. That's fantastic. Thanks yeah. for taking time to do this, man. Thank it's, you. It's a pleasure. Uh, people who want to find you for to get a river trip or a hunting trip, how do they find you? Yeah, they can go to sixranchoutfitters.com or they can find me on Instagram, sixranchoutfitters. Cool. So, yeah. All right. I hope a bunch of you do it so I can get a discount next year. (laughs) No, thanks. This has been fun. (laughs) Thank you, man. All right. Hope you guys enjoyed that. 
<clears throat> I definitely enjoyed it. Six Ranch Outfitters, give James a call. Uh, yeah, hope to see you in the hills of Oregon next summer, if not later this summer. Hope everything's great where you are. Thanks for your support, however you express it. And uh, talk to you soon. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. I don't want to give the end away, but we're going to die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. to the ground.